Chicago. This is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Art Sear, Stephanie Hitz, Nick Calm, and Dave Lundy. Our program tonight comes to you by our base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. If you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. And you can join us on the World Wide Web at beyondthebeltway.com. And as I said at the beginning of last week's program, the voice is shot, folks. Uh, I'm going to try to get through the next two hours. You're going to hear a lot from our guests this evening, and all of them are very excited that you're going to hear more of them than less of me. So, again, uh, and again, I'm I'm going to do something we did last week. I'm going to try it again this week. And find out from our guests, they have different backgrounds. Of all the issues that we could be talking about tonight that, that really dominated the news last week, Art Sear from Carthage College, in your view, and you're, you're, you're a foreign affairs guy, what was the most important, significant issue that, that riled you up or pleased you most last week? Defense Secretary Mattis's trip to the Middle East and South Asia with particularly important visits to Egypt, Kuwait, and Pakistan. All right. Follow up on that a little bit. Nick Collin. So for me, first of all, Bruce, I want to say uh, this is the first show since you announced your planned retirement from the Museum of Broadcast Communications, and uh, I want to wish you the very best in your retirement. But I want to hasten to add, I believe it's true that you're going to continue to host Beyond the Beltway yes. and Beyond the Beltway. Will that, is, that is true. I'm not I, giving that up. But I wanted to begin by wishing you the Thank best you. for that. So for me, the excitement is that um, there's been lots of scrutiny there's been lots of investigations. There's been lots of anticipation. And despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, the Republicans in Congress are actually capable of passing legislation. <laughs> okay. Dave Lundy, you may disagree with that uh, point, but you're our card-carrying Democrat from ALRN Communications. No, I, I, I agree with the point that I wish you well in your retirement. Um, I, uh, that's, that's the biggest news. Right, exactly. Um, but, uh, and I also ag- agree with Nick that the Republicans demonstrated they could actually ramrod something through. Um, I think that the most significant story of the week um, is, though, the tax plan. Um, and what it, what's contained within it, um, the people who are going to get hurt by it, um, and just the, uh, the utter sellout of the Republican Party to their corporate donors and their corporate interests. And Stephanie Hitt, you're a card-carrying Republican. Most significant issue for you last week. Well, um, I, I'm going to, again, wish you good luck on your retirement. Thank you. And I know you'll have spending a lot of time with your granddaughter. I will. Yeah. And, um, but I would say I'm glad you left it open for me to say that um, what's going to happen in the Russia investigation, I'm going to say that's going to be one of the Certainly the media's favorite topic for quite a while. And um, the sort of interesting twist that um, uh, Flynn's uh, plea has done left for the rest of us. Hmm. Nick, I want to go back to you. Uh, the, the, the plea of Flynn, hmm. doesn't it make the issue that the Democrats love to talk about, doesn't it make it a potential really ticking time bomb? for the nation and for the Republicans. Well, has, it, has it crossed into an area that even Republicans can't maybe ignore it anymore? Well, I don't think Republicans have been ignoring it, Bruce, but I think 
um, certainly the level of hysteria and excitement that the media and Democrats have had over it is fed by Flynn's plea, as well as by the president's ongoing tweeting. I think the bigger question, though, is what does it really mean? And there's all kinds of reckless speculation, and only Mueller really knows what it means. Again, he uh, encouraged a plea from General Flynn uh, for lying to the FBI, which may have had absolutely nothing to do with the actual Russia investigation. It may have been just on routine matters, and this is a way to try to get his cooperation. In foreign affairs, Art, the, uh, the issue of the Russian cloud and the investigation over the president, how does it impact uh, the foreign policy apparatus of the United States around the world? How, how are the allies and our not-so-friendly allies responding to this? Um, not so much. I think they're preoccupied with other things. The fact that we have a very uh, unpredictable chief executive occupying the office of the president and the fact that Russia is grabbing the ball from us in a lot of different foreign policy courts, I think that's a lot more important than this investigation. They're used to the fact by now, and we should be too, that starting with Watergate, we've been special counsel, special prosecutor happy. It happens to just about every administration. And for the Europeans especially, I think this is business as usual, except maybe they're getting even crazier than they <laughs> used to be over there in the good old USA. Well, and I think what's very interesting is the media seems to be really salivating over all of this right now. However, I think if you step back, you get outside of Washington, D.C., what's going on with the special prosecutor is not resonating the same way with a lot of the average person they see because what they see is they see a troubling investigation with someone who has a staff of prosecutors that have conflicts of interest they see somebody who's made a, a plea regarding something not directly related to the purpose of the investigation and now for example the most recent thing was that one of the highest FBI agents has actually been fired for tweeting about <laughs> his anti-Trump bias. So this is just feeding into what got Trump elected in the first place, and that is this is the swamp doing its swampy, messy thing, and th and they're now they're going after Trump with their tactics. And that FBI agent was also involved in the Hillary Clinton thing. In the Hillary Clinton thing. And it goes all the way back to Comey and you know, is she guilty? Is she not? His preparing a statement before she had even been interviewed. All of these things. And let's wind the clock back to March 2nd. Comey stated on March 2nd that Flynn did not lie to the FBI. So what does it all mean? What does so it mean to you, David? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think that um, uh, the draining of the swamp, the swampy thing, um, as you talked about, is uh, was very evident on Friday night with the tax plan, with the handwritten notes written in the margins of the bill um, as it was being uh, debated and uh, passed. Well, debated. It was two minutes of final debate but um, uh, and passed. Um, I, I mean, there were 6,000 lobbyists who had a hand apparently in this piece of legislation. Um, so I'm not sure that I've seen the draining the swamp in the way he promised. Um, but in terms of this investigation, I think that those who are suggesting that, well, Flynn, this wasn't about the Russia investigation other than the fact that he lied about his contacts with Russia, so therefore there's no there there, or as Donald Trump himself said, um, well, there's no collusion, so I'm happy. Um, 
if Donald Trump, if you're happy this morning or this this evening, um, you are truly delusional. Which, by the way, the New York Times did a really nice job of demonstrating all the ways that the president is delusional at the moment um, in believing a lot of things that he knows are untrue, like the fact he claims he never even it wasn't his voice in the Access Hollywood tape. I, am I think a lot of people the, are concerned. I'm about shocked the that the New York Times thinks that Donald Trump yeah. is delusional. Shocked. No, Nick, he, he says it's not his voice on the Access Hollywood tape. Nobody believes that. I think the only person who believes that is Donald Trump yeah. because he deludes himself. We're going to pause 1 800 723 82 And also, welcome listeners tonight to AM 790 WPIC in Youngstown, Ohio. We're back on in Youngstown, Ohio, and in Sharon, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. And thanks to our long longtime friend. Bill Kelly for making it happen. We've been off the air for there for a while, but now back on every Sunday night on AM 790 WPIC. Mr. Dumont back in Chicago. Um, let's talk. This is like the third week in a row, but we cannot go. We cannot go too much further talking about the latest episodes in sexual harassment. Right. Matt Lauer, Garrison Keeler, uh, John Conyers. The pressure is really on John Conyers. And Nancy Pelosi has changed her tune this week uh, because some members of, the, of her uh, uh, Democratic caucus basically have stepped up, uh, you know, without any real, uh, any great national credential to say that John Conyers had stepped down. So how do you, I want to talk about how do you feel, of course, the Roy Moore thing is still ticking out there. And, and Barton from Texas, he's not, gonna, he's not running again. How are both parties handling this issue. We'll start with you, Nick. So, well, I've, I've heard a comedian call it pervnado, which I think is probably <laughs> an appropriate way to look at it. <laughs> I, like, I wish I could take credit for that, but it's very, very funny. Um, well, no, I think the most significant thing here, Bruce, is that because you have Franken and you have Conyers and several other uh, congressmen or uh, representatives on the Democratic side of the aisle, and the fact that they are still holding on to their positions, I think that has rendered the Democrats' so-called war on women meme inoperative. You can still talk about birth control. You can talk about abortion and all of that. But to have the moral high ground that Democrats tried to enjoy and I think did enjoy for the longest time, you can't continue to have that if you allow somebody like John Conyers or uh, Al Franken to remain in their positions. And then the other sidelight to that is, interesting, you see the pressure is almost all on Conyers. Meanwhile, Franken, as we're up to, right. I think, six accusers now coming out, and yeah. there's photographic evidence of his harassment, is being given a pass, even when he impeaches himself in a lengthy interview with one of his hometown TV stations. I think the point is this. Republicans are missing a big opportunity because they have not coalesced around preventing Moore from being elected, and it looks like from the polls that he will. They would have been able to capture some high ground if they had gotten him off the ballot or postponed the election again or gotten Sessions to take his old seat or any number of different things. But I think it ends up being a zero-sum game. I don't think the Democrats get an advantage because they aren't cleaning up their own house and the Republicans have the Roy Moore problem. Well, All right, let's, I'm going to get uh, Dave's response. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I actually I agree with Nick in one respect, which is I don't think this is to the benefit of either party um, because there are there are nasty perverts in both parties and the parties are not cleaning house. And this is true, whether it's Springfield or whether it's Washington, DC. Um, when you look at 
I mean, I, I, I disagree with you about the, the Al Franken. As you know, I've called for Franken to resign. I've called for Conyers to resign. Um, and yet they're not. And yet they're, I know they're not listening to me. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> they should. But, um, I'm that. <laughs> uh, but, but I think that the, the, the challenge that you guys have is that as loud as you want to say Franken, we just get to say Trump. Um, and, and, and I think we can have bipartisan agreement that as bad as either of them are, there's nobody worse than Roy Moore. <laughs> Because at least Donald Trump, to the best of my knowledge, other than the part about parading through the Miss Teen Universe uh, pageant dressing room to see the, the girls naked, other than that, uh, really it was Roy Moore preying upon children. Now, what do we say about those people who voted for Donald Trump? They knew about Access Hollywood. Everybody who voted knew about that. And the American people rendered a verdict. And in a couple of weeks, and Donald Trump is elected. So it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't as big enough deal as the media thought it was going to be. Now we have, within two weeks, the people of Alabama are going to render a verdict. And, and either the national media is going to say, great, or they're going to be aghast by it. I think they'll probably be aghast by it, because I think Roy Moore will probably be elected. So then it's going to go to Congress and to the Senate to decide whether or not this guy is going to sit and all the indication is that certainly the establishment folks are going to consider not even accepting him, you know, to take the position. That's not no. That is not the indication. If you listen to if you listen to Mitch McConnell this morning on all the Sunday morning talk shows, mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell was basically was backing off his attacks on Roy Moore and was essentially sounding like he was becoming more comfortable with and say, well, it's up to the people of Alabama to, to decide. Elect well, him. well, and to, it, elect, to elect him. Well, but the, but now let me just go to the next step. The next step is you've got John Conyers, who's in the middle of a term, and then you've got Senator Franken in the middle of a term. And the Senate and the House, you're asking them to render a verdict on one of their own. It's not their constituents that are throwing them out. It's Nancy Pelosi who would like to throw them out, would like to throw him out. And yet there is a perceived double standard that if they're going to throw the senior black member of the House out, you know, right. and you're not doing it to your liberal darling from, uh, you know, Minnesota. Is there a double standard here? Totally. No. Well, you say no. Uh, what do you say? I'm going to get the reaction from the well, other Well, I, I think it, it points to two things. One is, um, th- you know, people perceive this as Washington still has a process and a procedure to protect their own because these are all internal processes. Now they're going through ethics community, committees and so on like that. What voters are seeing is that Washington does protect its own. It doesn't matter how abhorrent their behavior is. And secondly, voters are starting to change their reasons for voting. And I think you're going to, and you saw that with Trump and you're hearing it on the ground with more. And that is at some point, I don't care about that person. I want this policy or this vote to rule because that's more important. It is more important and if, if for Kanye, me to decide who if selects were the next forced out, the Supreme if Court Kanye's justice. were forced out, mm-hmm. he would run and win again in his home Sure district. he would, yeah. Probably. And they would because he's doing the things the voters want him to do. Where it gets hard is Roy Moore, where you know they've come out and said, you have a pro-life vote. You have someone that's going to vote for tax cuts. You're going to have somebody who's going to vote you know, um, on immigration this way. <clears throat> a lot of people who are saying... That is more important to me than your terrible behavior. Art, your response. Well, the, the Congress has thrown people out before for impropriety, not all, this kind of impropriety. Bob Packwood comes to mind, yep. although that was quite While a while. While in office. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's the other. You can't stop him from taking office. They can. What they do when he does, though, is another question. No, but the question is about someone who is in office. I mean, that's why I brought up Packwood. Go ahead. Packwood. Yeah. So I mean, we're really talking about what should they do. About uh, about Al Franken. Politicians are ultimately pragmatic. I, I don't see. I've never seen McConnell as any kind of paragon of consistency, and the the parties are very very close in the Senate. I think that my guess is they'll accept him, but I'm just an academic. And but I, I think there's an awful lot of hypocrisy, as colleagues here have been indicating, a lot of hypocrisy among people in public how life. It, how the president, it, the president yeah. of the United States, did not get elected because of or because people overlooked his improprieties, he has a very powerful, though, though minority base in this country, but he was running against Hillary Clinton. He was running against well, Hillary Clinton. They, Another Democrat would have defeated him, of they, course. But they knew the fact. They, they, over, but they the, overlooked But the option was Secretary Clinton. The option else. was Secretary Clinton, who's a very corrupt, yeah. by standards of impro- impropriety, uh, and I'm not being hard on one gender as opposed to... It's just an awful candidate, and I think it's unfair to the American people to say that they overlooked Trump's many shortcomings. What people have to do is be realistic, and that was the alternative. He was not a strong candidate, just as he's not a strong president. But, Bruce, you said that the media is hoping that Moore will not get elected. I couldn't disagree more. They want him to be elected as much as the Democrats do because that's going to be an albatross around the Republicans' neck. The only thing that makes sense for them to do politically if Moore wins, is take some of the actions that they talked about doing, you know, an immediate investigation, um, taking whatever uh, Senate procedural motions they can take to prevent him from taking office. Is that going to suddenly turn Alabamans, Alabama into a blue state? Of course not. But if that would put the Democrats in an impossible box <laughs> if they actually why take they action against Moore. Well, Pardon? Why, why have they not made a strong effort to do some sort of a write-in? Are the rules... So difficult in Alabama that you can't pull that because off. Because seventy-one percent of Alabama Republicans believe that b- believe no, no. don't believe Roy Moore's accusers. Seventy-one percent think they're, this is all fiction. Well, right, now, and again, let's look, it's, to a, let's it's, look I'm a broader issue. Your your area of expertise is reputation mm-hmm. restoration, mm-hmm. Nick. Right. Let's let's talk. <laughs> gonna, are you going to ask me what Roy Moore can do <laughs> to restore his reputation? Uh, no, that, I, I'm sorry, Bruce. I enjoyed being on the show. I'm going to have to leave now. You have a lot of business. <laughs> They'll have to hire you to, to figure yeah. that. out. But the Good question luck. is, the climate, mm-hmm. the climate where we are right now. Yeah. Where allegedly horrible things happen to women. In many cases, they wait many many years to come forward. Right. We've heard all kinds of stories that they feel that their careers mm-hmm. would have been. You know, deep six did they come forward. But it wasn't, you know, and again, I'm not saying that pe- women that come forward, some are telling the truth. But we're at a point now where an accusation is like a conviction. Absolutely. I mean, look at the speed with which everything has happened with Matt Lauer, although it really didn't happen too fast. Yeah. It happened when they found out. But right. um, what's going on here? Actually, and what's Matt- happening in the business place? What's happening Even the in Matt academia? Lauer thing did not happen because they found out. It happened because they were about to be exposed. Right, yes. right. it started two Vanity. years ago. That's a very important point. Yeah. Variety old. had been working on a story for two months, yeah. Yeah. which yeah. is why the second it happened, right. they came out to with answer two, your question, your yes. To answer your question, Bruce, yeah. I think what we're seeing, what I'm certainly seeing with my clients and just more broadly, <coughs> is companies that paid, organizations that paid lip service to anti-harassment 
policies and training are now taking it much more seriously as they should. Uh, and it's terrible what's been allowed to go on. And I think there's a lot of people, a lot of men, who are just sort of running scared now because of what they did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, coming out and destroying their careers. Uh, whether that's a fair thing to do or not, because it was a different time in certain respects and different tolerance. You know, you brought up Donald Trump. We can go back to Bill Clinton and what is or isn't okay in the workplace there. Let's ask Monica Lewinsky about that. But I think the more important thing is in terms of what you were just saying is the atmosphere now is very much sort of Salem witch trial-ish. It has that potential for that. I think I'm not questioning any of these accusers, but what better time if you're a woman and you have a beef with a guy than to bring this out as a, as a complaint? It's basically like the Salem witch trial so that if she drowns, she, was a she wasn't a witch, and if she does and she floats, she is. Do you think the and, McCarthy and era, the McCarthy era is another good analogy for the current period? Absolutely. I'm sorry, guys. We've got to pause. I want to hear your response. 1-800-723-8029. From coast to coast and border to border, I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks for joining us tonight. Stephanie, you were on the program last week. Uh, once upon a time, you worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, New York, and you were assigned, and as a private attorney before that, you were assigned to sexual harassment cases. Correct. In private practice. Yes. Tell us, um, tell us how you feel as a woman. How has this issue, in your view, affected uh, the role of women in the workplace right now? be honest I don't know I think what it has done is sexual harassment law really started coming to the forefront in the late 80s early 90s and there was a, a lot of attention in the legal world at that time a lot of case law was being developed and so on I think there was a strong feeling at that time that in many industries in many corporations businesses there were new standards and practices that were in place that were going to at least for the most part solve the problem now what we're seeing is this rise in other areas like the media, Hollywood, politics, areas that somehow missed that boat, weren't really trained in the way uh, that other, other corporations Silicon were. Valley, too. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so I think there's a sense that there's a whole new group of women, especially younger women, who are much more media savvy, they are much more in tune with what's going on in those areas that are starting to see it in those areas. Do they, do they, do women today, however, uh, see themselves as having so much power? Because anyone that steps forward and makes an allegation today against certainly someone with some degree of fame, they're believed. In, they're instantly believed. Uh, again, it starts, an, it starts an investigation which could give veracity to their charges. That certainly was the case with NBC. But again, you, 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 can, you can sink somebody's career real easily right now. And, and, and I, do you think it's too easy? Are you worried about that, 
that very fast slope, Dave. I'm not. And, and here, here's the thing. Um, you guys talked about the Salem witch trials. You talked about McCarthyism. But I see this in Springfield. I, I see this in government. You see this with media types in, in, in Hollywood. You saw it with Mark Halperin, uh, the, the political journalist. Their women have so been so badly treated for so long, and not all women, but some women have been so badly treated for so long by so many men who thought they could get away with it and did for decades that, yes, the pendulum's going to swing maybe a little too far. We need to be a little careful. I agree with you on that. Um, I, I could totally see how this could go wrong. But, my God, we have so far to go to finally get some of these women to say, you know what, enough's enough. I'm not going to be harassed. And, and I will tell you, I've literally seen this firsthand out in bars in Springfield where legislative leaders are hitting on young female lobbyists and they don't know what to do. They try to laugh it off. They try to push it off. But they're like, I need this person in order to do my job. So they're put in this weird bind and in a box. So right now, my sympathies are still with the women. And when we get to the point where you're accused, we've got a lot of false accusations, I'll worry about that later. Well, Art, I want to get yeah. Art Sears' response. Art, I think how are things playing in academia? I agree. Uh, well, we're very sensitive to these matters in academia. And one of the most important points I make to students, I think, is that things go much better when men and women work together on an equal basis. Uh, in the workplace and in life. My workplace experience started quite young when I became an office boy at the age of 13. And on one of my first days on the job, the office manager, who happened to be a woman from Russia, was being what we would call harassed by a middle-aged guy. He didn't say anything sexual, but he was talking to her in a condescending way. And uh, despite my youth and total innocence, I was thinking, you really ought to shut up, Mr. Thomas. And she went upstairs to talk to the owner, who happened to be a man. She marched downstairs, and Mr. Thomas was gone. I worked in a supermarket, and things were pretty equal. The harassment was of male managers against other male laborers who were constantly being pushed to break union rules. The vast mass of Americans don't work... uh, in academia and getting their education. They don't work in the media, and they don't work... No, but if someone works in the media... And they don't work in politics. People are... I don't think the average American woman faces this experience in the same way that people who are rather privileged do. But what happens happens in academia where you have a professor of one gender, Mm -hmm. you have students of another gender, and I'm suggesting it, it could happen with... With, with female professors and, and male students as well. I mean, that's not out of the question. How often does that occur? I mean, it's, in academia today, I mean, can you, can you bring a student in of a, of a different sex and have a meeting with them to talk about grades, or do you have to have someone there observing that meeting since with you a student? A, since you asked me... Uh, if it seems at all sensitive, I'll make sure that uh, a colleague is there or our administrative assistant. That's a big change. Way back in the 70s at UCLA, a young woman who was spectacularly beautiful and had no interest in our large class came to see me and came on to me in a kind of melodramatic way. I, I think I was quite inspired. I slipped into my nutty professor role, the superior Jerry Lewis original. <laughs> when she finally started getting more encouraged, I said, well, if you really do anything, you, uh, you'll do anything I want. What I want you to do is go to the library and open a book 
and study it <laughs> and experience for you. And I, today I wouldn't do that. I, it, there's no way that humor can interfere in anything related to gender and sexuality, and I'd make sure I had a witness there. But, Bruce, Nick, there's a marked things difference. Things have changed. There's yep. a marked difference in terms of how these things are happening, whether it's the private sector or the public sector. The private yeah. sector, the employers are acting very, very swiftly. And in the public sector, as we were talking about in the earlier segment, there's a lot of hand-wringing, there's a lot of toothless ethics committee reviews and so forth. <laughs> there's slaps on the wrist, there's I'm urging him to resign, and they all continue. They all continue. I think, you know, the bigger issue, not the bigger issue, but another issue that we need to focus on is we already have government institutions held in historically low repute. If harassers, whether it is the President of the United States or a U.S. Senator or Congress people or whoever it is that are allowed to get away with this. And again, it does go back to Bill Clinton, who did, even though he was impeached, he got away with it. We've had 20-plus years of this getting away with it. And you, you can need see a Clarence Thomas. And you can well, see a direct correlation between how the public views governmental institutions and this getting away with sexual harassment. Well, would you say, I'm going to add one quick follow-up, would you say, and I, I know that you don't like to throw accolades uh, to the Hollywood elite. <laughs> Not if I can help it. But... <laughs> Looking at the way they responded to Harvey Weinstein mm -hmm. and looking at the way they responded to Kevin Spacey mm -hmm. and, and several other lesser-known stars, um, do they get credit because the speed with which they reacted and the, the severity in which they responded? And responded? Billy Bush. And Billy Bush. They, they, I'd say they do to some degree, but they, the issues were there for years, and nobody did anything right. about it. And it it's it the same the BS of, about Matt Lauer, right. the incredible stupidity of NBC to say, this was the first complaint we had received about him. Really? Right. What, were you an ostrich for the last 20 years? And Charlie Rose. Rose. There's a real yeah. question I mean, is, how genuine is this reaction? That's a real question is, there was this swift move, everybody's jumping on the bandwagon, everyone's doing this. Well, for how long is this going to happen? Is this just going to blow over at some point, and then it's going to go back to business as usual? And that's the real concern because the real problem is in the late 80s, early 90s, big companies, major corporations, they were getting on board with this. Hollywood, Congress, the media, whatever. Th those industries where there's a sense of invincibility mm -hmm. and power that comes with getting in the, being successful in those areas, those people have been getting away with it. And what is startling is people knew for years and years, and nobody cares. Nobody is, did anything about it. Look, I, I agree with you, and I think that, that you were right, Bruce, to point out that the, the industries that are coming later to this, you know, generally speaking, corporate America did this earlier, but not universally. No. I've, I've oh, heard no. a story from a, a, a friend who was a senior level executive at a large Fortune 50 company um, who told me that um, they would not allow the CEO to be in a room without a minder because he was constantly hitting on young women. This <laughs> is as recently as last year. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is a Fortune 50 company, and that they've, they've made the settlement after settlement after settlement. Stepping in. He's Nobody agreed. should fire the guy. Exactly. He should agreed. fire that CEO. But on the other hand, at the way, least it's, it's there's something in place to protect too. those people. Corporations have been pretty good. About, you know, those that care enough to do the right thing mm -hmm. have been good about doing management training, having a resolution, having a complaint committee, uh, you know, a process that you can bring this to. And but you look, but also, in, in many cases, you look the other way, and this may be the case with your, your CEO. Corporations look the other way if the person who's being charged 
is a moneymaker for them. Yeah. That's true. That, that's, that's true. Of Weinstein. Weinstein. Weinstein was a, he was a money Lauer machine. Lauer, exactly. He was a money machine for twenty that, years, if, and then suddenly he's stopped. If you're invincible, and you're there, is that feeling? If you're powerful enough, and you do enough, people will look the other way. Because when you're famous, so. they let you get away with it. You can do anything. Well, I think we're <laughs> that somewhere. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yes, Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. he was a pioneer in the field. Asked to put Trump up to this. Or do no. you think they were really they, just no? They were just talking. <laughs> they were just talking, and he was bragging. <sighs> yeah. um, but look, it'll be interesting because actually, Billy Bush, speaking of that, has not spoken out since that tape came out, and he's on Stephen Colbert tomorrow. I believe night. that's going to be well, who is notorious anti-Trump. Oh so it'll God. be interesting yeah. to see the direction that takes. Mr. Yes. Dumont, you want to yes. spend the entire program talking about this, or do you no? Want to I was to going to. Uh, just <laughs> I'd like to talk about taxes. You know, we're going to be like the rest of the media groups, and also no. The rest of the media. I want to come back uh, because at the beginning of the program, I want to come back to saying things you talked about. I want to talk about whether or not it's a good idea for Rex Tillerson to go. Has he been a good Secretary of State? Mm, oh How is God. he playing on the uh, on the net? I think I was those talking are some of the things. Those are some of the things. Mattis so get ready. Okay. You're gonna you're gonna have your opportunity to talk, and I'm gonna rest my voice. One eight hundred seven two three eighty twenty nine. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Uh. Back oh, in I Chicago, think. Nick, come. You were going to talk about that Bernie Sanders is the number he one is. Democrat. Well, in according the to the polls, that uh, yep. he's the Democrats' <laughs> favorite candidate, and he will be, I think, seventy-eight. I think uh, by the time of the next election, no, he would be eighty. He'll be eighty. I'm so sorry. No, Joe Biden would be seventy-eight. Ah, so Joe is the youth movement <laughs> of the Democratic Party. <laughs> and, and, and I, and, Warren, who will be what seventy-four? Look, I, I would, okay. I, I would <laughs> like to be very clear. As a Democrat, I would like to see us move on from the septuagenarians and the octogenarians. <laughs> I just think that, you know, it's time to start thinking about tomorrow, as Bill Clinton once said. And it's not going to be Al Franken. And it's not going to be Al Franken. Certainly not. He, he's off the list. Yes. I want to go back to foreign policy, Rex Tillerson, uh, North Korea, uh, the rumors that, uh, that Tillerson may be on his way out. Yeah. Should he be on his way out? I don't think so, Has no. he been a good, bad, or indifferent Secretary it's, of State? I think it's very mixed. We should all feel good about the fact that a senior corporate executive can be in the cabinet and Secretary of State, no less, without it being controversial. Eisenhower had lots of very capable big business men on his very able cabinet. He kept it as secret as possible and made a point of never being photographed, except for formal cabinet meetings. But he, li- but he, but he listened. Hostility, hostility to big business people. What, but but let's talk about uh, let's talk about our current president and whether or not he is deliberately undermining his secretary of state and 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 the bigger question is why would he do that? He's very unpredictable and erratic, and uh, we all know that. Rather than talking about his personality, I think Tillerson, like most CEOs of big corporations who are successful, has phenomenal energy, and he's been a stabilizing source. In terms of negotiating overseas, he does a lot of that in his statements. The State Department is drastically understaffed. What worries me is that major appointments haven't been filled. Great secretaries of state like Atchison, in my view, Kissinger, and James Baker have very effective presidents. I think John Kerry could have been a great secretary of state. He did not have a very effective president. I think Tillerson is boxed in by lots of things, but the failure to staff the State Department. These these secretaries of state I mentioned all 
except for Atchison, they had problems with Whose working fault is foreign that? service officers. I think it's Tillerson's fault. The buck stops with the cabinet officer. So it's been so very, it's it's not, been it's very not, mixed, but I hope he stays. the Senate for, uh, for approving some of those appointments that have been made? Or the, have the appointments no, they not haven't, been made? No, people they haven't been brought forward. We don't have major ambassadors. <laughs> and, you know, you ask me, I tell you, as usual. I'm sorry for speaking at length, well, I'm as usual. Double. But uh, the... Uh, <laughs> I can't cure your cold. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, look, he came into a State Department um, with a bunch of vacancies, didn't appoint anybody to those vacancies. There now, I believe, are 61 or 63 assistant secretaries of state vacancies mm-hmm. and no appointments. And so the question is, is that Tillerson or is that Trump? I, I get the sense that he's operating, you know, that he's doing the bidding of the White House in this. Because uh, I can't imagine he thinks it's okay to not have anybody. I mean, you, you, we don't have ambassadors. I don't think we have an ambassador to South Korea. Yeah, he's um, responsible. I'm sure Trump is impossible to work with. I mentioned Mattis when you were good enough to ask me earlier, and there's another individual who's devoting a tremendous amount of time and energy to the very difficult work of diplomacy. Nick, should Tillerson go? No, I think actually he's, you know, what's interesting is that we were all told that we were just millimeters away from World War III with North Korea. Meanwhile, they keep launching missiles over the Sea of Japan, towards the Sea of Japan, bragging about being able to reach the United States. And what are we seeing instead? Ongoing restraint in our response to that. So it's interesting. I mean, it must be absolutely killing the media and the Democrats to acknowledge that that's what we're getting. So I think no. the point is, yes, the point is... Well, I'm quite that, convinced that we're more comfortable not having World War III than having World War III. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that one. But the point is that Tillerson has been effective in this regard because we have, we're seeing more pressure on North Korea. It's still not enough to actually have them change behavior. But we're not in World War III, which I'm glad you're happy about. Well, yet. Although that would be a good campaign platform. Look, for the first several months we were going through this and the president would send his tweets and call Little Rocket Man and the rest of it, I said, look, you got nothing to worry about until, because you you don't have battle groups in the region and we haven't sent a bunch of planes and we're not, you know, we're not gearing up for war. We now have either three or five carrier battle groups in in the region around Korea um, and we just sent a bunch of of, uh, stealth fighters, um, which we are about to launch exercises that would that would exercises for taking out North Korean sites. Mm -hmm. So am I getting slightly more concerned? Yes, I am, because I think that the, the the pressure on. From China, on China to do something is not working. But, but I think even back to the staffing issues, Bruce, that you were asking earlier, all these vacancies, this is a little bit like the government shutdowns, though, right? Government shutdowns are terrible politically for whatever power, politician is in power, but it shows that we're perfectly capable of operating without those positions being filled. Now, yes, it's like, you know, motherhood and apple pie. Every position at the State Department should be filled. But have we had chaos in a year of this president without those positions being filled? No, we haven't. Well, and and the one thing to remember is the State Department probably is one of those agencies that has the most political baggage, so to speak. I mean, that if you're coming in as Trump, Talk about anti, you know, talk about establishment, career people who are committed to their political the views. The deep it state. is, I mean, it is like the swamp extraordinaire in many ways. And so there is, there could be a very strong feeling that Tillerson's got to clean up the State Department before he starts filling it. But he's not I mean, cleaning it up. There's a lot up. of work to do. He's, he's a not, little busy. 
Well, he's, he's <laughs> I, I'm sorry, he's not doing his job. My concern is that Trump's going to appoint somebody who's also not going to do his job. So I don't know that it necessarily helps matters. Would Nikki Haley be better? Yes. At that particular spot? I actually would very much she, like to see Nikki, Nikki Haley as Secretary she's good. I think she'd be What very is good her public. secret? What is her secret? She does what she wants to do and uh, hopes that she can get away with it, and so far she has. She said a lot of things that the president, uh, completely opposite of what Donald Trump tweets. Um, as is she, half the cabinet. Right. <laughs> right. Would she be able to do that as Secretary of State, or can she only do that? Uh, where she's currently at. Tillerson called Trump a moron and is still in the job. I mean, allegedly, how much more? Allegedly. So did, so did, uh, so did um, uh, McMaster. Right. It's fashionable. It's fashionable. We're going to pause 1 800 723 From coast to coast and border to border, I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly after news. Dumont back for hour number two of Beyond the Beltway, wherever you're listening from coast to coast and border to border. And again, new listeners tonight on AM 790 WPIC in Youngstown, Ohio, and Sharon, Pennsylvania. Nice to have you with us tonight and back on the air in Youngstown. It's great to be back on the air, and we look forward to your phone calls at 1-800-723-8289. Dave Lundy, you're one of our card-carrying Democrats. You think the Republican tax bill is horrible. So my question to you as a, as a Democrat who wants to see control of the party switch in 2018, why don't you just, why are you not supporting this? If this is going to be absolutely the worst thing the Republicans ever did, then it must be the best thing for the Democratic Party. Because I see you're so confident (laughs) that you, but because of this, the people will rebel against the Republicans and Democrats will take control of Congress in 2018 which will set up a 2020 race for a Democrat. So why are you not happy about this? Because some of us actually care about how this is going to affect people. (laughs) Um, As I was driving down to the studio today, I was talking to my best friend in New York, um, who is listening right now as he's driving upstate New York. He's a conservative Republican. He voted for Donald Trump. Um, he's uh, in that, that economic bracket where you're kind of upper middle class-ish. Um, and he said this tax plan is going to kill him. This tax plan, he does not know how he's going to pay for college for his kid under this tax plan because of some of the outrageous features of it. Um, so, for example, those of so us— So that friend in 2018 is going to vote for a Democrat for Congress. <laughs> I don't and know, And in 2020 is going to vote policy. against some Democrats. I am first well, and foremost I'm, a policy person. Do I think well, politically a, this is going to help Democrats? Absolutely, I think this is going to help Democrats. But I think that policy-wise, this is an abomination. This is, retribu- this is political retribution no, in a way that has never been done before. They are using the tax codes to punish those of us in blue states. That's what the state and local tax deduction, uh, getting rid of the deduction, is about. And Nick Cobb. Well, I think that may be true, not punishing peace, but it's to try 
try to create a little bit of fiscal discipline. I mean, you sit there and go, oh, these deficits are so horrible. So maybe some fiscal discipline in a state like the one you and I live in, Illinois or New York or New Jersey or California that have just taxed people. Everybody sits there and talks about the 39% federal tax rate. If you're in a state like New York or California, your effective tax rate is over 50%, more than 50 cents of every dollar that's taken. You know who's being punished? The tax law punishes people who are successful. And the idea that a tax cut that affects businesses, pass-through entities, and individuals, that it's not going to help drive further confidence in the economy, drive job creation, capital deployment, repatriation of dollars is just false, Dave. Even the best estimates, even the best economic estimates, even your economic no, estimates Dave. are saying no, this. Dave. Is, no, Nick, listen. I'm going to listen and I'm going to tell the, you why the, it's wrong. You're going to tell me why every analyst, every economic analyst. Okay, so tell me why it is that when Gary Cohn, the president's chief economic advisor, sat in a room with 300 corporate CEOs and said, we're going to pass this thing. How many of you are going to add jobs or raise wages for your employees? Five hands out of 300 Because that's not the primary purpose. That's not what they're going to do first. The primary purpose is to send money into the pockets of the shareholders. Here's the problem. Most most Democrat complaints about – These kinds of tax cuts and changes come from two things, two huge misconceptions. And one of them is that somehow somehow the economic pie is finite. No. Yeah. And, and that's the problem with the forecasting, the though. That's the the forecasting one. is all based and on no, no I'm growth. About dynamic. It is, let, it is, let Stephanie finish There's two point. points, and it, it, it repeats over and over every time there's a criticism. One is that the, somehow the pie is finite and that it's just a shifting of who gets what. The second one is, and this one really is apparent in this one, is that somehow – Rich people, if they have more money, will hoard it. Mm-hmm. They do. And the critics, no, they do not. Yes, they do. And the on this one, for example, the, the corporate, they're saying they're not going to hire, you were going down this path, they're not going to hire more people, they're going to give it to Just shareholders. Said that. He said it directly. Who are shareholders? No, that's and what the what CEO said, what do shareholders said, do? When shareholders get dividends, they spend that money. There is this feeling that somehow money gets hoarded, stuffed in a mattress, Dave, which is incredibly not true. It's Dave, not a Dave, 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 they can't even. Dave, 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 people they can't, Dave, they can't even Dave, fill Dave, the no, jobs no, that no, they have now. Let's let Dave respond. So Dave, creating new jobs, okay, they got to first. Dave, Nick, first of all, Dave. your entire assertion is not supported by historical fact. Okay, the historical economic data, when this has been experimented with, whether it was Kansas, where it was a debacle or whether it's been in the United States, what happened after the two rounds of George W. Bush tax tax cuts, massive tax cuts in the in the last decade, the economy did poorly. It did not do well. The economy does well when people, middle class people, have money to spend on consumer goods. And they're going to have a tax cut. It doesn't do well when the government interferes with economic activity and starts manipulating. Dave, why are why are all the mortgage markets? Yeah, why are people fleeing from Connecticut, New York, for states like Nevada, Florida? What do you think that is? Is it just the weather, Dave? Is it, or do you think it might just have a little bit to do with pecuniary tax policy? It, it might, but that has nothing it to might, do with but, the, blah, blah, blah. But, but that has nothing to do with the point you're making, which it is about economic ap- growth. Economic growth has been proven time and time again. This trickle down is a failure. No, that's not it true. It doesn't no. work. And the most optimistic forecasts are for 0.4 percent increase in GDP growth. In an economy that's already near full employment, according to your own stats. And besides, there are real people who are going to get hurt. My dad, for six and a half years, had 
uh, medical expenses of over $100,000 a year. And the only way we made that economic, those economics worse and were able to keep him at home is because of the medical expense deduction. Well, the Under this, have- hang on. Under this, that's gone. Student loan interest deduction, gone. Yeah. Um, these, and the, these tax cuts are temporary. The first round expires in 2022. The second round expires in 2025. The corporate tax cuts are permanent. Why, why do they expire, Dave? Arch, are, why do they expire? Our, 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 your response. Because you can't survive under reconciliation unless they, they expire. Art, Art, sir, we've not heard from you. Art, go ahead. I think what it looks like is... And I think what the Democrats can exploit is the argument that it's for upper-income people and corporations. They always the, do that. The, the working class, never been as bad as this the working one. class and middle-income tax cuts are generous, but they do expire, as he indicates. They wheeled out Mnuchin, our Treasury Secretary, who has no credibility with anyone who studies the worst shenanigans and crimes of people. Oh, well, that'll probably be made permanent. I think that the best chance for the Democrats is to point out that this is a ki- the kind of con job, the, the kind of people who fired you, voters, the kind of people who let you go from your job. They're pulling another fast one on us, and I think it's there. Enormously optimistic growth projections. If the economy uh, continues six, to improve. If I could finish my point, enorm- since you've talked a lot, enormously optimistic growth projections of 6 and 7% a year are necessary to make this work in terms of not blowing a hole in the deficit and our debt. It adds an estimate, under optimistic growth projections, it adds more than a trillion dollars to the debt at a time when Social Security and Medicare payments, which are being ignored by the current Republican regime, are going, obligations are going to go up tremendously. That's not true. All of them are based, as Stephanie was talking about, as if that pie was finite. No. Static. No. Uh, forecasting. That's it's not, not dynamic. Not yes, they are. No, they're not. The CBO did a, dy- they did a dynamic score. So did the Brookings Institution. So yes. did the Tax Policy Center. So did the Tax Foundation. You've got to look at these Absolutely. models. They do dynamic scoring, and it doesn't pay for itself. For a sign of growth for Beyond the Beltway, I think. We've got a pause, one 800 Now, how do you come down on the Republican tax plan? Is it going to help you or hurt you? Back shortly from Chicago. Back in Chicago, thanks very much for joining us. Question to the folks. If trickle-down economies work, why did Reagan and Bush have to raise taxes? Nick it's a Dave, like the media, like many Democrats, likes to point it, paint it in very simplistic kinds of terms. And the reality is the economy is a very complex beast. You've got recessions. You've got downturns. You've got foreign influences. You've got... Uh, cash flow management, you've got uh, the monetary supply, all of these different things are at work. So sometimes you need to push different levers. I think that's really what it comes to. Well, and increase in defense spending, too. Both of those administrations dealt with those problems. And so that is the other job of government, and that is to keep us safe. And so when when defense is made a priority, then your spending priorities, you know, they shift, and those you have to cover. Now, that is the Republican answer to the question. Dave Lundy, what is your answer to the question? Because trickle-down economics is a fake. It's because Arthur – because it is true. I will give you this. It is true that revenues grow when the economy grows. Look, I run a small business. I want the economy to grow. I love it when the economy grows. 
I just want the economy to grow with policies that are have been proven historically to cause that to happen, whereas trickle-down economics historically has failed. Which is increased taxes, basically. That's the way to make well, the economy Reagan up. did that. Reagan did that. He cut after taxes. After lowering them from... After lowering them too much, and then he increased taxes. George H.W. Bush increased taxes. George W. Bush cut taxes too much, and as a result, when the economy turned south, the deficits exploded. We're going to go to calls. Ginger in Austin, Texas... Listening to us on KLBJ. Go ahead. Hi. Good evening. Um, I have been waiting for an argument that has never appeared in most of my life, and I'm 66 years old. Okay. And that's about the loss of self-government. We used to understand that the size of government depended on what the people themselves could be able to control, that the larger government got, the larger the clientele of government got, the larger they were able to capture government for their own ends. Both Republicans and Democrats, for most of my life, have progressed along that path to where we, the people, aren't able to even get policies that we, you know, like immigration. Our laws have said for the past 30 years, you know, you have to come legally, yet both parties have conspired against us to get what we want implemented. Therefore, we have lost the ability to govern ourselves through our elected representatives, and it's been captured. Therefore, any way you can reduce that, and tax reform is one way, that there is not the ability to grow government to the point where there is no ability for us to have self-government. Nobody talks about this. Part of the problem, I think, is that... um you know, we've become, as a country, addicted to a large government. And we've bought into this idea that government is going to do a lot of things for us and solve a lot of problems for us. So that's, and then when you want to reduce the size of government, you have to basically scale back what government does for us. And that reads into entitlements. Nobody wants to be the bad guy to take away the entitlements. And meanwhile, a majority of people don't even pay taxes. But we've become addicted to it because we've accepted, probably over the last 40, 50 years, if not longer, this idea that government is going to take care of us, provide for us, or is somehow better at doing things for us than we are for each other. And there's a corollary. But here's the thing. The government does the less we do as people and we used to understand that the character of the people was all important and that when people become so subservient that they cannot even feed themselves without government assistance then how can we be a mm-hmm. self-governing self-reliant people look the uh, how can the- we vote against our own interest if the, if my next meal depends on who gets in the white house how can i vote impartially for the common good. No, that's a good point. Go ahead, Dave. The, the, the question is, what do people want government to do? Because his, what, what always happens is that you do, you've seen polling on this, and the people believe, oh, we can eliminate deficits just by cutting out waste, fraud, and abuse. It's the biggest lie told to the public by politicians. You cannot cut out waste, fraud, and abuse and eliminate deficits. The problem you have is that the public wants education spending. They want prisons. They want security. They want roads. They want bridges. They want what government provides. They don't want to pay for it. So what these surveys happen again and again and again. And when you look at what's actual, what we actually spend money on, like on a state level, 
Um, it's education, it's health care, it's prisons. They also No, but I think people want smart government as well. Right. I mean, I'm a law and order guy, but I don't want more prisons. I think there's creative ways that you can, that you can mete out punishment to people that's, that's conducive to the 21st century. So that, that's thinking smartly about, about what the public wants and needs, but government should have a responsibility to think smartly, not just you know, build another you know, prison that sometimes is either overcrowded or sits empty. We have prisons in the country that are sitting empty. Art. I think we all should thank the caller for expressing very effectively the kind of frustration that a very large number of average Americans feel and that obviously was reflected directly in the election of President Trump. I'm not sure the federal government is any bigger than it's been for the last half century in terms of a percentage of GDP. The two Republican panelists quite rightly pointed out that we live in a dynamic environment. We academics tend to think in terms of a fixed pie, but they're quite right. Government as a percentage of GDP hasn't really grown much at the state and local, at the county and local level it has, and to some extent at the state level, but not the federal government. During World War II, we had a government that was far more in control of what we do than we've had at any time since. We also had much bigger debt and deficits, but that that was directed at the destruction of Hitler, Imperial Japan, the Axis powers. What we have now is an older population made up of people like me and at least one other individual at the, at the table. We've got debt that's written in into the future, and that's what we have to address. We can do that. The Reagan people, President Reagan got together with Tip O'Neill and Pat Moynihan, the senator from New York, and O'Neill, the speaker, when Social Security was clearly getting out of control, they raised the cap on earnings, they slightly increased the tax, and they solved the problem. We can do that again. We don't necessarily have to have Irishmen running everything like they did during the Reagan time, but we've got to face these things, and the current leadership is not. I think that's the real problem, man, but I don't think government's getting Nick. bigger. So, Dave, I would grant your point that it is false to suggest that waste, fraud, and abuse alone would solve the deficit issue. However, the problem that many people have is statements like that that Democrats make suggest that there is absolutely no value and no reason that. to address the waste, fraud, and abuse that exists. That. No, I'm saying that that's a natural extension of that argument. And it's like it, it's ridiculous to suggest that that's going to solve the deficit, so let's not even try. So the point you were making earlier where you were talking about your friend in New York who was wondering, you know, is grandma going to get pushed off the cliff? Am I going to be able to send my kids to college? It's because if you live in a state that has depended on taxing at a ridiculously high level, this new tax policy, like everything else that's tax-wise, it's social engineering. There's no question. Every income tax reform and law that's been passed is all about social engineering. This is no exception. And part of it, for sure, is to try to send a signal to those high-tax states, most of which are blue states, I'll grant you that, to find a way to try to live within your means. What? And a lot of us not only have no problem with that, we're glad to see it, even if we live in a state where we have higher taxes that are not going to be captured by the, uh, to, the new tax I want to go law. to Diane in Sacramento listening oh, to us caller. on KTKZ. Nice to hear from California tonight. Oh, okay. Hi. What I wanted to say. Oh, wait. I got to turn this. Uh, what I want to say is, you know, Trump now he has to come out and say, "Look, I'm setting in place 
the possibility of jobs for people. And you people on welfare, you know, if you're really down and out, of course you'll be helped. But otherwise, it's not going to be there. However much you want it, it's not going to be there. You're going to have to go get a job. And he has to communicate that, which he can. Dave oh. Lundy. <laughs> it's simple. I, 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 uh, <coughs> this, this, this fantasy that the problem we have in this country is that everybody's the welfare queens are sitting around, um, you know, eating bonbons and driving their Cadillacs goes back to the Reagan days. Um, it's not true. It's and not- the Clinton days. Well, Clinton is the one the who did the welfare reform. He did the welfare reform. Absolutely, he did. Republican Congress, yeah. Well, actually, this was something he was Bipartisan. It was, yes, a bipartisan. it was a bipartisan. He deserves credit. What's that word mean? Yes. But no, no, no. It's not the welfare queens. It's that people don't have it in their head. I, can, I need to go get a job. Like, didn't they do that in Minnesota or somewhere where they said you could only be on welfare for so long and then you got to have a job? And... And actually, it worked. Well, that's what welfare reform was under under right. you, and, know, you know and in the nineties. With you know, sometimes good heart, well intentioned, good hearted means of providing welfare sometimes backfire too because then there's you know if it's not structured properly, then those people who do need to who do want to go out and work find that they're cut off from welfare. So then it's yeah. how you create those incentives, and that's that was the problem in that's, the 80s and early 90s. That's what the caller's 90s. referring to, I think. Exactly. And, culture of and when government gets into the business of creating those incentives and social engineering, we get into a lot of trouble. But they, dis- they yeah. create disincentives, too. When you eliminate child care credits for people who are trying to get off of welfare and go to work, um, then how, the people can't, they have a choice. They stay on welfare and take care of their kids or not. We've got to pause. When we come back, we're going to talk about the verdict out of San Francisco mm. in the Kate Steinle case. And what reaction to that verdict might mean for the future of the Dreamers' vote in Washington? Back shortly from Chicago. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us from coast to coast and border to border. I apologize again. Still uh, uh, respiratory problems this evening. Hopefully I'll be better next week, but a nice, nice to have you with us. Um, I want to go to, you know, an issue we've spoken a lot about on this program is illegal immigration. We spoke about the Kate Steinle case when it happened. We talked about the, uh, the nerve that that hit during the campaign. I think it was that nerve that really propelled Donald Trump uh, to the Republican nomination and ultimately to the presidency. And yet we have this other issue that is out there concerning dreamers, uh, young people who came to this country, they accompanied their parents. Their parents came here illegally. They've lived in the country for many, many years and have become productive citizens. At least many of them have become productive citizens. That certainly is the, is the media story about the dreamers. And yet uh, the President of the United States 
uh, has said that it's up to Congress to come up with a plan uh, by, by March. He's given them some extra time to come up with a plan to figure out what do you do with the DREAMers. The question that I'm asking everybody tonight is, given the volatile nature of the Kate Steinle case and then the verdict in San Francisco last week that this illegal immigrant who came here, who basically because of his actions led to her death, Again, he wasn't charged with, wasn't convicted of murder. But you know what? He's here. She's dead. He's still here. He's going to be deported now. Again, although he'd been deported five times in the past. Lives in San Francisco, sanctuary city. And I would argue that if San Francisco was not a sanctuary city, or if this guy had never come to the United States or stayed in the United States, Kate Stani would probably be alive tonight. So my question, given the political dynamic of how emotional things can be played one way or the other by the respective parties. Does this incident make it more difficult or less difficult for meaningful immigration reform and the Dreamers Restoration Act, if you will? Does it make it more likely or less likely, Dave Lundy? You know, I I think that this this was... So unfortunate. Um, I mean, I I haven't been following the trial closely. I don't know whether the verdict was just or not. Um, But Kate Steinle's dead. Right. Um, And that has an enormous amount of of sadness and tragedy and emotional appeal um, for those that feel like this is happening all the time. It's not. Um, uh, immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, are very productive members of society. They're productive members of society because they're afraid of getting in trouble, um, and their crime rates are dramatically lower than the rest of society. That having been, and that's according to Pew. That having been said, um, I think that this is going to make it more difficult to to do something for Dreamers. I don't see how it's not. Nick, I would agree. Um, and another reason it's, but the 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 issue here is that. Um, when's the last time we had any kind of bipartisanship? We were joking in the last segment about bipartisanship and bipartisan legislation. We haven't seen it. Obamacare passed without a single Republican vote. Tax reform passed without a single Democrat vote. Well, there so, were 15 uh, Republican votes on the, uh, the Senate uh, um, immigration reform bill. Right. Okay. But the point is there are, from a DACA standpoint, enough Republicans want to see that pass that they're probably going to find a way, even if it's without any Democrats supporting it, because there is a sense of fairness and a sense that, you know, these young people had nothing to do with the fact that they were here illegally. It was a parental decision that occurred. But I think the bigger issue is— And they are two. I want to be clear. They are two separate issues. They are. But Completely I th- but separate I think, issues. But, Bruce, I'm going to go on record here and say I think the next big issue, we saw health care. That's now in the past from a domestic standpoint. That there, hopefully nobody's going to try to revisit that again because that was an abject failure. We have tax reform now in the past. I think the next big issue, and you alluded to it in your introductory comments, is sanctuary cities. I think that is going to be the next big flashpoint. We've seen it here in Chicago, San Francisco, Miami, many of these other so-called sanctuary cities. Regardless of whether or not the immigrants that are here illegally are more likely to be criminal or less likely to be criminal, There is a feeling that if you don't have borders, you're not a country. And if you're basically saying, listen, if you're here in this city, you're more likely to vote Democrat, so we're going to call it a sanctuary city. You can stay here. That is going to be, I think, the next big political battle domestically. The the, the pro-sanctuary city folks, right? I mean, those people, they're they're there. Sure. They have friends in in the courts. I mean, it's the courts that are slapping Donald Trump 
Well, we'll see. At least one thing he's been doing, and nobody's denied this, he's been able to make more appointments to the judiciary than Obama has in a very long time. Stephanie. Well, and what's interesting is um, this trial took place, you know, in a sanctuary city, probably with um, jurors that are are probably more likely pro-sanctuary city. And so I think there's a real strong feeling that this is exactly why we need this immigration reform. But I'm going to agree with Nick. I'm glad you went there. I think that people are going to very, very much separate the dreamers from other immigration, building the wall, not and all strict immigration in that sense, because there is a true sense of compassion. I think that you're going to, it's a very conservative value. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, people who want to come here, work hard, build a new life, and take responsibility for themselves, that is a very conservative value. And I think you're going to see a lot of conservatives coming over and supporting that with very strict controls on regular immigration. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an opportunity for strong presidential leadership, which we have not had, in in my view, since the Clinton administration. But it is an opportunity for bipartisanship, so I think our colleagues are right. Um, I think also the system is working. He was not convicted of murder. My understanding is the fatal bullet was a ricochet. It was not an intentional killing, so we can trust the jury again. The system worked. The prosecutor appears to have been guilty of overreach. There aren't riots in the streets. I believe the president will continue to exploit this issue shamelessly, but I think beyond that, there's a real congressional opportunity. But the, but the bottom line to most people, and this is where, uh, and Donald Trump is in a, he articulates this position, does it in, maybe in, a, in, in, does it in an emotional way. But the point is, had this guy never been able to get into the country, that's number one, and then really in working the system that's there to beat the system three or four or five times and remain in the country, stick his nose up and his finger up at, at, the, at the, the, the policies that would have gotten, that would have deported him. That's where the outrage is. Now, granted, I did not listen to every moment of the trial. I can't say that this guy was guilty of first-degree murder. There obviously was an overreach on the part of the prosecutor. And the, and the jury... I'm not second-guessing the jury. But this is a guy This is a guy that I'm not arguing that he should not have been prosecuted. I'm arguing this is a guy that should have never been in this country. He should have never been allowed to be in San Francisco, mm-hmm. to be in a position to, to, to misuse his weapon that ends up in a ricochet of Kate Steinle dead. She's dead. He's still here. And that's where I think the outrage is. And incarceration, the whole gun I, issue too. INS is taking him into custody as soon well, as good. they can get him yeah. from the good. San Francisco. So he's certainly not off free. And I guess he's not off free. He should have never been here. He should have been test, gone ten the years ago. The test will be the degree to which the president of the U.S. echoes your statements in terms of us seeing a, a lot of pictures of this individual as part of the Trump re-election campaign. Well, and, and the well real they test should will they be, should see yeah, his picture. Will be. Will he come back? I mean, until the system is fixed, there's still a chance that he can come back, and he knows he has sanctuary in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. that has not gone away because he was deported, and he was able to come back. So the system is still broken, and there's nothing well put. 
Yes. Nothing out there that says this system this system isn't going to repeat its mistakes. I'd be kind of surprised if he came back to San Francisco, but you're, well, maybe well, Miami well, or yeah, Chicago or Boston yeah, or other sanctuary cities. Like a whole slew that have advertised themselves. Yeah. And and yet the courts have said that uh, the president is not going to get his way on sanctuary cities. Well, so, we'll I mean, see. Where, where is, the ninth, where we'll is see. the ninth circuit? Well, that's why Congress is important, Bruce. No, well, I know they are. But my question is, is there going to be a bipartisan effort? And was, are there Democrats that are going to be moving forward? I mean, I mean, Kate Steinle's law couldn't even pass Congress the, the last two years. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, and, and that, that's with Republicans in control. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, where is the outrage? And are there Democrats that are going to step forward and, and make the case that, you know, sanctuary cities are not good for this country? I think it depends no. on how you define sanctuary cities. And, and I, I say that because in Illinois we passed a law, um, which the Republican governor signed. Sanctuary um, state. It is not a sanctuary state. It is not remotely a sanctuary state. And this is exactly my point. Um, it depends how you define it. You're, you're, we've created this brand of sanctuary cities, which suggests that all you got to do if you're an undocumented immigrant is to flee to a city and then hide, and you're good because nobody can come after you. It's not true. Um, uh, so I, I you mean, it's not true. It's not true. You what part of it's not true? Well, the federal government can come after you anyway. That's true, and. They, I think they have their hands. There's kind no of sanctuary. Full. There's no sanctuary in the city of Chicago. What there is is that the the whole point of what you guys call sanctuary cities is they lack a cooperation by the city. They don't turn people over. They don't turn people over to the federal government. Yes, because they're trying to fight crime in the city, and fighting the crime in the city is more important um, than cooperating in, with the feds that's, on this. That's not why they're doing it, Dave. No, they're 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 not doing it because, frankly, they don't want to tick off the Hispanics in Chicago. They want the votes, and the Democrats only care about the votes. That's it. So we're not going to we're not going to say anything. We're not going to do anything that that, ticks off the Hispanics. Except that historically, Latinos do not vote in the numbers that they they possess by orders of magnitude compared to African Americans. They all try to give them a little. The vast majority vote Democratic. Right. The vast that majority is not, of that is not what the policy is. That is not what the policy If you ask the police, if you ask the city of Chicago, the police in the city of Chicago, they will tell you they want these laws that you're calling sanctuary city because it allows them to get more cooperation from communities. It's the same reason why when the president goes after Muslim communities, they're concerned that you're going to you're going to well, you're help the terrorists. It, you're suggesting that Hispanics don't want to cooperate in any crime in there. No, I think that's. But there's another way of doing it, and that is. Just two months back in Chicago, and uh, one other issue, which it, it's tied to sanctuary cities and tied to uh, illegal immigration and the Dreamers Act, and that is. Uh, one of the most uh, outspoken and vociferous members of the United States House of Representatives when it comes to all things related to illegal immigration has been Congressman Luis Gutierrez, uh, and he announced this week that he was not seeking re-election. He's been there for many, many years, and he has turned over uh, his, his, his uh, political base uh, to uh, Commissioner Chuy Garcia, who ran for mayor a couple of years ago against Rahm Emanuel, and uh, there's speculation as to what Luis Gutierrez is, is up to, including he's been a very high-visibility character, or, or figure, rather, I should say, uh, insofar as the, uh, 
the, the problems in Puerto Rico and, and the, uh, the, the federal response. He's been very critical of the federal response in Puerto Rico. There was a rumor that maybe he will uh, run for governor of Puerto Rico. But there's also a story uh, is that he may be thinking running for president of the United States. And Dave Lundy, uh, people know the name Luis Gutierrez. They've seen him on television. Uh, how viable a candidate would he be and what would his goal be? Well, I think that, um, first of all, he's already said he will not be running for governor of Puerto Rico, right. nor will he be running for mayor of Chicago or governor of Illinois. Um, it is my understanding he is um, uh, looking to run for president of the United States. I don't know. I honestly don't know if he thinks he can actually win or if he's running to elevate issues that are of importance to him. And himself. And, and himself, sure. Anybody who runs for president generally is elevating themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. Anybody who runs for anything. Well, he's, he's missed an opportunity, though. I think if, if immigration is going to be the next issue that's going to cross the, the, you know, cross the Washington streets, then that would be a time for him to get national recognition. I don't think he has, I mean, he has some national recognition. So why is he foregoing this opportunity to jump, you know, to be out there vocal Building a base nationally because he's been the out there and vocal, and again, he's in a minority in the House. But, but the, he's got someone to run. He's got someone to go up against. A boogeyman. He's got Donald he's Trump. Got to, exactly, and he's never going to get someone like that again. And it's never going to be as heated and volatile an issue, um, unless Trump runs again. Yeah, but why, I think. But I, but I think. Exactly. Yeah, but I think the bigger issue, though, go Bruce, ahead. is this. And I think that the Republicans and the Trump administration have made a horrible miscalculation with regard to the Puerto Rico relief effort. Because, again, a very dysfunctional island uh, and territory that is recovering very slowly, not only because of all of this dysfunctionality, but because there hasn't been an overwhelming surge, if you will, from the from FEMA and others to get Puerto Rico back on its feet. That's something that Gutierrez is going to exploit, but I think the bigger issue is you have 100,000 people at least so far who have moved from Puerto Rico to Florida as just one state alone. Think about all these presidential elections and how close they've been. When you have 100,000 people who are all American citizens and are all going to be able to vote in Florida, I think the idea that Florida is still a reddish, purplish state is gone. And I think that is a huge miscalculation that the Trump administration has made in and terms of maybe vice and president. Believe, and maybe I do the believe vice president. That, that that is exactly the type of thinking that Louis Gutierrez uh, is known for and thinks about. Louis Gutierrez, by the way, used to be a regular guest on this program for about seven years mm -hmm. when no one knew who he was uh, before he became elected alderman in the city of Chicago. And so we go back a long time. Unfortunately, uh, he's never come back here in recent years because now he's like every politician. They want to take Sunday offs to be with their family. But we'll see. When, That's when so he overrated. We'll see, when he's, we'll see when he's running for president. Yeah, clearly none of us at this yeah. table are doing yeah. that. But, Get away but here's from the our point. families. Louis Gutierrez, was a, Louis Gutierrez was a community organizer. Mm -hmm. and, right. and we've heard that before. Yep. And I think he looks exactly what you said. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a political issue here. And there's Hispanics, be they Puerto Rican or Mexican, there's an opportunity for him to be their champion. And he looks at not only Florida, but Michigan and Wisconsin and other states. And he's even said, when these Puerto Ricans are coming, let's pour some in Illinois. Let's sure. pour. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he, he, he is the type of guy who strategically, and he had some money behind him, 
he could, he could bring in more people who come to the United States. They're already citizens of the United States. Move them into selected areas and selected districts, and he could have an impact in 2020. And if he's running for president of the United States, no matter who you are, you're going to get a lot of press, and he, is, he has a large ego. Right. He loves to get that name out there, and he will perform in 2020 the role that Jesse Jackson performed in 1988. At, he will be a national least. champion for a sector of the Democratic constituency. No one, everyone will be fearful to take him on, and he will, he conceivably could be very, uh, he's not going to be the nominee, but his votes could determine who the nominee is going to be. You never know. You never know. And I think all of us, myself included, need to be very careful not to dismiss him too out of hand. Because not be any, just go back and look at some of the, the video of people like John Oliver and Stephen Colbert and others, Bill Maher, laughing hysterically about the prospect of a reality TV star becoming the president of the United States. Right. And that happened. No one should dismiss the power and the Machiavellian planning, and I say that in a positive way, of Luis Gutierrez. Very interesting. And I just want to know, could he be the? What what did Rahm Emanuel do to Mm. get Chewy Garcia to be the anointed one? Which, by the way, that has really upset because Luis Gutierrez was a was a bomb thrower back in the early days, and he was a young firebrand. And I think there's a lot of young Hispanic firebrands now. There's an alderman in the city of Chicago that certainly fits that bill. And I think they're looking at this as an example of sort of the old-school Democratic Party that oh, one yeah. political leader is trying to pass on a handoff the Chicago a tradition. district. And I'm not so sure National that uh, Chewy Garcia will not have a run for his money for that congressional well, seat. So anyway, our thanks to our guests. Our thanks to uh, our Dan Dorfman and Fritz Goldman and Sam Greenberg for the production of tonight's program. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago.